So Jay, the Ravens had me thinking about Marvel's other crypto vampire, Sauron. Is he still even alive? Miles, what kind of writer would kill off a hypnoterodactyl? Come on, that's just unfair. But no, Sauron is alive and well and making all sorts of trouble. That's that's actually really comforting. It's good to know that some things endure in these uncertain times. What's he been up to? I mean, aside from the usual hypnotizing and soul-sucking and swooping around in tiny jorts. Well, he teamed up with Stegoron for some evil science. Stegoron? What, like a Sauron who's a Stegosaurus? Well, no, no, actually, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I don't know why I'm surprised. Stegoron, sure, why not? Uh, What were they up to? Let's see, uh, they kidnapped some kids from the Jean Grey school. So, business as usual. And turned everyone on Staten Island into dinosaurs. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 148 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Indeed, and welcome also to another reminder of an awesome thing that's coming up. Yeah, we mentioned that this is episode 148. We will be recording episode 150 live at Emerald City Comic Con a week from when 148 goes up, because of course we record a week out. That is March 2nd through 5th in Seattle. We will be there the entire weekend tabling. We are going to be hidden away in the podcast zone far on the 6th floor at table PZ6. The podcast zone, is that like the negative zone? Yes. It is exactly like the negative zone. We're going to have a lot of cool Fantastic Four villains hanging out with us. They're all podcasters, didn't you know? I mean, that makes a certain amount of sense. Right? It's like Portland. You know, you got to have at least uh, 1.5 podcasts per capita. Exactly. No, we're actually going to be tabling right next to War Rocket Ajax and possibly rap battling with them. They don't know that. I mean, I I just decided that just now. So we'll see how that goes. In any case, uh, we will have a ton of merch, including the brand new Cyclops Resist t-shirts and buttons, also the usual range of podcast logo t-shirts, buttons, zines, including the headcanon zine we debuted at Rose City Comic Con last year. And other cool stuff, Um, I will be doing Sharpie knuckle tattoos, and we will totally give you high fives and fist bumps absolutely free. We've also got a party on Saturday night at Phoenix Comics. Check our website, explainthexmen.com, for details on that. And we're going to be doing a live episode, number 150. Whoa, that's a lot. With Dennis Hopeless and Charles Soule. That's on Sunday at 12.15 p.m. at the podcast stage. We have a zone and a stage. The stage is presumably in or attached to the zone? I think it's just like the podcast stage. It's like the fire stage or the ice stage or the jungle stage. You know, you have to walk from left to right. Oh, I see. What power-up do you get at the end of it? Uh, I'm pretty sure some kind of microphone that can shoot lasers. Can our microphones shoot lasers? Kyle? Yes. Why have you not told us about this before? I feel like we could have been shooting lasers for years. I mean, to be fair, if I were Kyle, I wouldn't have told us. It's probably Yeah, we are kind of in his studio, but... Yeah, there are lots of fancy giant monster statues and stuff around here. We could open the window and aim them at the neighbors. They're loud sometimes. (laughs) That seems entirely reasonable. You kids, get off my lawn! Lasers! Well, anyway, um, yes, if you are going to be at Emerald City Comic Con, we would love it if you came and said hi and checked out our stuff. Ooh, I'm also on a ton of other panels all across the weekend in addition to our live show. I've got... The um, Taking Fandom Seriously panel, which is all about intersections of fandom scholarship and creative work, as well as a panel on uh, geek culture and masculinity. And Dr. Nerdlove, Hope Larson, and I will be solving your relationship and dating problems live um, and in person on a panel. So that's going to be kind of amazing and unprecedented, and we'll see how that goes. Oh, man, I I really want to be on that one. That sounds great. You should come. I'll give you relationship advice. Excellent. We can have somebody watch the table. It'll be I good. feel like getting relationship advice from your like long-term ex probably has some conflict of interest going. That's either a really good idea or a really bad idea, and I'm not sure which. I don't know. I think I'm a really good wingman. Uh, That's probably true, yeah. Like, I actually do give you pretty solid, like, (laughs) relationship advice. Yes, you too. I try. We're good at that. So anyway, that is next weekend. As far as right now, what are we talking about today, Jay? Today, we are back with X Factor, and oh man, we are on one of the best worst arcs ever. So is it me, or does X-Men have a habit of having anything involving vampires either be, like, really good or really questionable with very little middle ground you could have taken x-men out of that sentence and replaced it with like western culture that's probably true although i thought you were going to say westerns and then i was just thinking of a bunch of western vampire movies and oh uh, shit i'm so into that i'm sure a bunch already exist i don't know of them though god i hope so oh god if they do can we marathon them because that actually sounds fantastic that seems reasonable cowboy vampires and cowboy vampire hunters yeah 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 Okay, well, Hollywood, make it so if you haven't already. Yeah, if this genre doesn't exist yet, I'm claiming it right here and now. 
But let's have a little bit of context before we dive into X-Factor versus vampires. Oh, I thought you meant for the cowboys. And I was going to say, well, westerns tend to take place or be centered around very bright and sunlit environments and areas with a a lot of shade. So there are extra challenges to the vampires. That said, the cattle herds would make a good vehicle for feeding and also... You want to talk about X Factor? <laughs> In fact, fine. Do you want to say it? Always. Previously on X Factor. So X Factor at this point consists still of the original five X Men. We've got Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Angel, currently Archangel, Iceman, and Beast. They are living in New York in Apocalypse's converted ship, which is now towering over the skyline and presumably really screwing up flight routes. Now, this being X Factor, we've had all sorts of character-focused soap opera-y goodness. So, in no particular order, Cyclops recently proposed marriage to Marvel Girl. Who turned him down because she still had memories of him proposing to Phoenix and Madeline Pryor and felt trapped by destiny. Meanwhile, they have been co-raising Cyclops and Madeline's baby, Nathan Christopher, who has rapidly manifested extreme telekinetic abilities. Specifically making a bubble around himself, so, you know, pretty focused so far. Very useful skill because X-Factor's other hobby is child endangerment. They bring this baby on a lot of their missions. Bad choices, X-Factor. Now, Beast is currently dating the reporter Trish Tilby. Iceman is currently dating the hipster record store artist lady Opal Tanaka. And Archangel is currently in a committed relationship with his own feelings. But he has caught the interest of badass cop Charlotte Jones. Speaking of Archangel, so years ago, well, years ago in publishing time, probably months ago in comics plot time. It's just, the whole thing's just happened over about four days. Right. Angel had his wings amputated after an injury. He was then captured by Apocalypse and transformed into Apocalypse's Horseman of Death. Angel broke free of Apocalypse's programming and he became Archangel, who is like Angel, but bluer and much, much sharper. His wings are now made of flechettes, which he can fire, which are tipped with neurotoxin. And right now, specifically, he's super fucked up because he just fought Caliban and Sabretooth and got poisoned by some poison on Sabretooth's claws. So he's in real bad shape and hospitalized. Oh, Angel. So that's where we open in this tableau of angst and romance. So let's jump into X-Factor number 54. We're going to skip 55 because we covered that in the last X-Factor episode and then go to 56 through 59. Now, speaking of upheaval, X-Factor is currently going through a rapid-fire series of artists. I don't think we've got two issues in this arc drawn by the same person. We don't, yeah. I mean, we had, you know, Walter Simonson for a very long time. Then we had some decent runs by, like, Paul Smith, a bunch of villains by Terry Shoemaker. But here, it's five issues, five artists. This one, X-Factor 54, is penciled by Mark Silvestri. And you can always tell it's Mark Silvestri because suddenly it looks like a classic romance comic and also everyone just has hella hair. I wish I had Mark Silvestri hair. Well, really, I wish I had Alan Davis hair, but if I couldn't have that, I'd go for Mark Silvestri hair. I actually have Walter Simonson hair days pretty regularly, which I appreciate. You do, it's true. Um, They work pretty well. Alan Davis hair is rarer and requires more work and definitely a blow dryer. Mm, But I can pull it off occasionally. It's hard to maintain, especially in a humid climate, but it's doable. (laughs) Well, speaking of romance comics, this practically is one right now because in Soho, which a lot of X stuff is taking place in Soho in this era. I don't know why, but it totally is. What actually defines Soho? It's south of something. It's the Soest of the hoes. South of Houston? South of a house? South of... Santa Claus, who says ho, ho, ho? It's a mystery. I'm sure there's no way for us to find out... I should know this. I'm moving to New York in like two months. (laughs) You better figure it out fast. I know. I know. I'm the worst. I'm going to be the worst New Yorker. I'm just going to wander around lost all the time. Just plaintively crying. What the hell is Soho? What does it mean? Where is ship? Take me to X Factor. (laughs) Well, in Soho, Iceman is ending his first date with Opal Tanaka. And they kiss, and as he ices up and slides away, she asks him to come to her friend's party later as himself, not as the celebrity. She wants to introduce him to people as, you know, just Bobby Drake. So I want to talk about Opal Tanaka a little bit because Opal is great. And Opal and Iceman's relationship is something I have really mixed feelings about. So Opal is this awesome record store clerk. She is notable for a lot of reasons. Um, some of them involve cyborg samurai, but we'll get hey, to hey, those. Cyberai, show some respect. Cyberai, sorry. If I just say it without the samurai context, it sounds like it is an eye that is cybernetic, not samurai that are cybernetic. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. When I hear cyberai, I think cybernetic samurai. But then again, when I hear almost anything, I think cybernetic samurai. Well, that explains so many things. For instance, the cybernetic samurai. But anyway, Opal is great. She is a clerk in a record store. She is thoroughly underwhelmed by X Factor and Iceman, but she's a lot of fun. She's smart. She's nice. She's funny. She's snarky as hell. 
She's also not particularly thin or traditionally pretty, which I really love. Like she has a lot of personality and a lot of language to her face and body that women in superhero books in this era don't tend to get. I love it. And that's interesting you mention it because like we were mentioning a few minutes ago, the artists keep changing issue by issue in X Factor. So it's hard to get much of a consistent uh, aesthetic for a given character. But I would say, yeah, overall, that description is accurate. Yeah. And Opal is terrific. But here's the thing about Opal and Bobby. Even the first time I read this, this was long, long before Iceman came out. Their relationship just felt super awkward to me. They have a ton of super kick-ass friend chemistry and just sort of no romantic chemistry at any point. Even with the kisses, like we never see the kisses. We always just see sort of awkward moments afterwards. It turns out they're just biting each other's faces gently. Neither of them is quite sure how it works. It's just a really sort of caressy version of the Wesley Willis head bump. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. They're trying. Like, I feel like I see them leaving and like my instinctual what there should be is a complicated handshake. Maybe they work that out later. Maybe they work that out on like a high five. And I really want to see, you know, um, Cena Grace has mentioned that some of Iceman's old girlfriends are going to be showing up in his new series. And man, I really want a world where Bobby Drake and Opal Tanaka are best bros. Cena, if you're listening, please make this happen. We would happily give you advice. Yes. Hi. (laughs) So, yeah, they're heading off. And this is mainly notable right now because as Iceman, you know, slides away, this is not a subtle thing. He's on a big goddamn ice slide. Who the hell knows what happens to those things when they melt? I suspect everything in New York is very wet these days. He's being watched by a figure that's going to become very important very quickly. No, no, no. She glimpses him briefly, but she is busy doing some murders because this is not just any random lady on the street. This is a woman named Crimson, and I think I'm going to let Crimson introduce herself. I lay on hands. I heal him to death. I burn with him. He is the seed that draws the ravens, dark with wings of fire. Four and twenty half-baked in a pie. Burn, baby. Burn. Bernard the Poet? Is that you? Right. I mean, no, no. She is definitely more of the goth coffeehouse variety of poet. In fact, I have a really specific theory about what her deal is, which I'm going to get to at more length later. I'm intrigued. But no, she is one of the ravens. Ravens, by the way, are not blackbirds. I mean, they they are, but they're it's not the same thing. I kind of feel like these psychic vampires that we're going to see so much of, they don't really sweat the small stuff as long as it sounds cool. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of internally inconsistent. Fortunately, they're only around for this arc, but we'll get back to her later. Iceman, meanwhile, hears a commotion as he is passing by the hospital and heads over to discover Scott and Jean fresh from their lack of engagement at the hospital with Hank trying to restrain Warren. Right, because Archangel is hallucinating from the claw toxin that Sabretooth dosed him with and is just slashing the crap out of everything. What he sees is Sabretooth attacking him or the doctors who amputated his wings years ago trying to amputate them again. Yeah. Angel has some really bad history with hospitals, which the team remembers and they decide once he's been effectively subdued that they're going to take him back to ship, which is also kind of a terrible decision for other reasons. He's going to wake up on ship, immediately think he's back in Apocalypse's hands and take off yet again, but not before Scott and Jean get another you know, relationship angst scene, because that's pretty much what they do these days. After this whole proposal thing, Jean decides she needs to take off. She needs to just leave for a day or two, clear her head. And so she puts on a trench coat, surrounds herself in a pink energy field and flies off. And she is, of course, going to Uncanny X-Men in a story we've already covered where she's going to hang out with Forge and Banshee and fight some Morlocks in the sewers and grow tentacles. I guess that's one way to find yourself. I mean, I don't know how you do it, but that's the only way I can think of. So she's actually going to be out of the book for a couple of issues. Now, we already covered the issue after this, so it's not going to seem like as long, but Jean's actually gone for a decent amount of time. So, you know, kudos on the self-restraint, Louis Simonson. So anyway, after this, Archangel wakes up on ship and panics and is convinced that Apocalypse has him because X-Factor did not consider that, again, ship is where Apocalypse took him to soup him up into Archangel, a process that we know to have been pretty traumatic and terrible. Warren flees, proving that whether or not he has his memories and consciousness around him, he still does have certain X-Factor instincts. He just busts straight the hell through the wall. While Scott is busy having all of the feelings on ship, and ship is busy repairing itself, and Angel is busy swooping about being threatening, Bobby and Hank are headed to a fancy art opening. Yeah, this is the one that Opal invited Bobby to earlier. She hangs out with the art crowd in New York. 
and Hank has just sort of tagged along. I like the idea that Bobby and Hank go along on each other's dates. I mean, based on the way the Silver Age went, I kind of believe it. They used to double date freaking all the time. They seem pretty joined at the hip. We're talking like a Bill and Ted kind of relationship here. And uh, Beast is going stag to this, I believe, but not for long because he is the hot item at that night's event. All of the girls want to be seen with him. Now, he's not the only colorful person here because we also have that woman from before, Crimson, this time dressed to match her name. She's very pale. She has a red vampire dress. Is that what that is? Is that just a vampire dress? That's what I think of when I see it. It's also a specific type of late 40s, early 50s starlet dress. Ah, because vampires are late 40s, early 50s starlets. That makes sense to me. Yeah, exactly. It's actually kind of a terrific dress. We'll put some pictures of it up in the visual companion, but she is at the party for very different reasons. She is prowling around, judging the artwork, and she gets in a conversation with someone about how she wants to meet the artist because his work bespeaks a tortured soul. And this guy, as it turns out, is the artist's agent, and he tells her that the artist's just a brute, but the agent... My soul is far more tortured and refined. That's certainly one way to pick up women. So she sidles up to him and she pulls a little bit of his soul out of his chest in a red stream of energy. He staggers off a bit bewildered, leaving her to gothily comment. Run away then, little man. You have a poet's tongue and an accountant's soul. Your anguish is in your wallet. Not nearly gothy enough. Crimson seeks only the gothiest. It's true. No other will do. But speaking of angst and speaking of difficult encounters... Remember, they are at an avant-garde art opening in Soho, and remember who has been working as an avant-garde artist in Soho, who X-Factor hasn't seen for quite a while. Right, Peter Nicholas is here, you know, Colossus, amnesiac Colossus. And Beast spots him and tries to start a conversation, but Peter recognizes Beast only as a local celebrity, not as a friend, and he has no memory of his life as Colossus or of his membership on the X-Men and is convinced that Beast must be mistaken. As this interaction's going on, Crimson brushes by Beast, pulling out the dark memories of him being transformed into a blue-slash-black-slash-gray, depending on who's telling the story, furry monster. Unfortunately, they don't do much to satiate her, so what we learn is that she doesn't just feed on memory, she doesn't just feed on trauma, she feeds on ongoing pain, she literally feeds on angst, and Beast, while he has painful memories, has basically come to terms with and owned them, so he doesn't really do much for her. The guy he's with, on the other hand, seems like he's got a lot more potential, the amnesiac Colossus, and she lures him outside. And Beast figures, okay, I mean, this is probably just a hookup that's going on right here, and it would probably be super creepy if I followed along and watched, but at the same time, that lady made me feel super weird, and Colossus is acting really strange, and maybe I should just check this out. And hopefully I won't see anything that I can't unsee. Okay, first of all, Beast, you are literally at this party on someone else's date. So, you know, there's only so much further you can take it. It turns out his instincts are correct. and It's it's... just a hookup. Everything's good. (laughs) Nope. In fact, it is a vampire hookup because on the roof... So everything's awesome? Well, everything's, you know, murdery because Crimson is pulling out Colossus's freaking soul in this red stream of misty, fluidy energy stuff and he's screaming and she's laughing. She's forcing him to remember who he was and who he used to be. And when Beast knocks her away from him, he remembers a flash of it for a moment, but instantly loses it again and heads back inside. Yeah, Crimson manages to escape, figuring, okay, apparently mutants give me this extra kind of anguish sometimes, but it's still not quite enough so far. I need real misery. Gallant misery. I need a warrior's soul. Losses that twist the gut to remember. Losses too terrible to forget. I need... And then Archangel flies by conveniently in the panel below. His wings flapping, gently fluttering through the air with the rushing whisper of, None more goth. I gotta say, if you're a psychic vampire that feeds on anguish, melodrama, and backstory, like, you have come to the correct comic book franchise. Yeah, I feel like X-Factor in general is just kind of the all-you-can-eat buffet here. So, that's number 54. So then we have the fill-in issue with Beast and Mesmero we talked about in the last X-Factor episode that doesn't really tie in, but with number 56, the Raven's plot really, really gets going. To what extent it goes? Oh, it goes. I'm not going to say it goes in good or wise places, but it definitely goes. Is it a go? Is it a goer? Eh, eh? Eh? Know what I mean? Wings is good as a nod to a blind man. Eh? Eh? Say no more. Bathing costumes. <laughs> anyway, so in a cafe, Trish Tilby and her camera crew are interviewing Charlotte Jones about Archangel. 
And this is conveniently timed because right outside, Archangel just shows up in his darkity darkity Batman guise. Yeah, he is swooping around, fucking up criminals and generally wreaking a bladed vengeance on the underbelly of New York City, which is one of those things that's dubious at the best of times and real dubious when you are quite clearly out of your gourd as he is. The narrator describes him as a homicidal maniac in the service of truth, justice and the American way. And so he fucks up some drug dealers, but good. Drug dealers are sort of the all-purpose street bad guys in this era. This would have been, what, 1990? Uh, Late 1990, yeah. So this is Reagan administration. This is still, like, war on drugs. Makes sense, yeah. Anyway, Angel is swooping around, going after drug dealers, and Trish catches it all on film. And that's going to be a recurring theme here, sort of how Archangel is portrayed by the media and how his friends and enemies react to that. Well, and how those reactions are influenced by Trish's earlier relationship with X-Factor. In fact, X-Factor catches this bit on the news and Hank is psyched to see Trish until he sees the report. Archangel looks dangerous and crazy. He looks like a threat to society, which, to be fair, he kind of is right now. Yeah, I mean, Beast is normally a very smart, perceptive dude, but he really has a big blind spot when it comes to his friend. Well, Beast takes everything real damn personally, and especially everything that Trish Tilby does. You know, he's a guy who claims to be, and to a fair extent is at peace with being a very, very visible mutant. But at the same time, he is extremely sensitive about the representation of mutants on mass media. And he's particularly sensitive about it, and he always takes it personally when it's Trish. And so with things being all dramatic-tacular on ship, of course, Jean Grey picks this time to come back in her blue and yellow, sexified, Moira McTaggart-designed X-Men costume. Yeah, so this is the X costume that's basically shaped like the thong-over-tights exercise gear with built-in stiletto heels, and they're terrible. They're really bad. Oh, evil sexy Moira, your design sensibilities are questionable. But they are recognizable as old-school X-Men costumes, and Scott immediately gets worried that she is going to be leaving X-Factor for the X-Men. He, of course, denies this when she asks, but she is, well, is she a telepath at this point? It's kind of ambiguous. She is a telepath when it's plot relevant. Her powers, as far as I can tell, she doesn't seem to have a lot of direct, deliberate control over them, but she'll get flashes and she'll be able to track things by psychic impressions. And of course, she's got the link to Nathan Christopher. And I was going to say, I think, you know, she treats it as sort of outrageous, but I think Scott's conclusion isn't completely nuts. I mean, she said she was going to go off to find herself and came back in an X-Men costume. That does have some certain implications. No, no. The actual thing is, no, no, just the tentacles. <laughs> right. So we have our team slightly more reassembled, even if Archangel is still flying around being bladed Batman. There's another team, however, doing their own thing. So we mentioned earlier that Crimson isn't the only one of her kind. She's one of the Ravens, and we meet a number of them here. The Ravens are a bunch of douchey yuppie types who hang out in bars, sucking out people's saddest memories, and then making fun of them. They're awful. I think That's they, it. That's their thing. I mean, they do slightly more in that sucking out the memories often kills these people. But so, even so. still, so they're basically just yuppies. <laughs> I guess so. They're totally assholes. And we have six of them here. It's mentioned that there are 24 ravens in the world. They're sort of this cadre. There always have to be 24 of them. Six of them live in New York City. And those are the ones we meet here. These specifically, aside from Crimson, are Coral, Azure, Cobalt, and Cerise, not the Shi'ar one, and Beryl. Not mentioned are Atomic Tangerine, Neon Carrot, Burnt Sienna, and so forth. I really just love the idea that since they can't use normal color names, they just have to keep going for more and more obscure, like Crayola-style ones. You know what they remind me of? Like, What's the names, at least? What's that? Remember Shinesman? Oh, yeah, Shinesman. The, like, uh, Sentai parody thing with a bunch of businessmen who are right. basically... and they all had weird colors, so there was... Was there a Burnt Sienna? There might have been a Burnt Sienna. There was definitely moss green, salmon pink, and gray, and red was the leader because he was the only one with a normal color. Uh-huh. So does that mean Crimson is the closest to a leader here? Because I think Cobalt is actually the leader. Well, it's a blue. Yeah, okay. Well, um, that's reasonable. And Crimson is... Crimson, meanwhile, gives us ongoing narration, introducing the Ravens, their MO, their history, and just how little she cares about the rest of them. I noticed that a lot of the Ravens aren't real big fans of Crimson, like they don't fully trust her. Do you think it's because she just talks out loud whenever she's narrating? I'm fairly sure that that's what's going on, that they're sitting there talking shit about the other patrons and their traumatic memories. Meanwhile, she's like, they have ordered drinks, but none are drinking. It is all a sham. Our meat and drink is human misery. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you remember that scene from the live action Tick where the Tick's doing his narration thing and Arthur catches him and he's like, 
was I talking? I think it's kind of like that. No, the tick does that a ton, man. It's pretty great. So Crimson and the tick have a lot in common, or at least that one specific thing. Yeah. So as these yuppies are going around judging everyone, one of them psychically drains some of the uh, memories and knowledge of a stockbroker who's in the bar for stock tips because that's how they make money, I guess. Yeah, they don't actually get sustenance from that. They can grab any bits of souls or memories, but the only thing that actually feeds them is angst. But, you know, they can use that to make some money. Unfortunately, this damages the guy pretty directly. He promptly has a heart attack. But he also has, apparently, the sight. He recognized the ravens for what they were right before he half-keeled over. Yuppies! LARPing yuppies! <laughs> Wait, oh my god, can you imagine, like, a yuppie LARP? Like, where you LARP as yuppies? I'm just imagining White Wolf style. Like, what would the different yuppie classes be? I don't want to think about that. I mean, Miles, there are depths of horror that are probably best left undisturbed. Yeah, that's not White Wolf. That's, like, the super adults-only version of them, Black Dog, that came out with a couple books. Yuppie. The yachting. <laughs> but these guys are totally vampire characters, or at least they feel like it. Like, they feel like, and they talk, and they act like the kind of characters a bunch of high school bullshit goth LARPers would come up with. You know, I'm actually going to a LARP birthday party relatively soon. I think this is probably all the research I need to do. Just this storyline right here. And I'm going to come back to this. I actually have a special treat for all my old school LARP goths out there. <laughs> all four of you. We were legion. Children of the Night, so, so, so much hoarded Walgreens black lipstick. Well, for now, this heart attacked the sight and stockbroker is in the hospital. So Azure, the one who uh, heart attacked him, is ordered by Cobalt, the leader of the Ravens, to go finish stockbroker guy off, lest the secret of the Ravens be revealed to the world. And again in the hospital, stockbroker guy is able to see Azure. But Azure's diabolical plans for him are thwarted because Angel just happens to bust through the window at an appropriate moment for no discernible goddamn reason. You know what I think it is? You know how birds sometimes, they don't realize that windows are there and so they smack into them? Like, if birds were covered in giant bladed wings, then maybe the smacking into windows would go better for them. There was actually this Twitter thread because I posted a picture of Archangel flying through the wall of ship with someone going, Archangel, no, in the background. Um, <laughs> as sort of the definition of X Factor on Twitter. And this led to a thread where we were all just imagining Archangel... Um, um, acting like a really obnoxious cat all the time, like knock, just going into Beast's office, staring at him and really deliberately knocking shit off his desk. That's surprisingly easy to picture. Rubbing on all the furniture and just shredding it with his flechettes, marking everything with neurotoxin and so forth. Speaking of uh, shredding and neurotoxin, Archangel is quickly hypnotized by Azure, because that's a thing the Ravens can do, but his wings that sort of have a will of their own, and that will is to kill, are not, and so Azure gets decapitated. And bursts into flames. Actually, he just turns into fire, which is apparently the true form of the Ravens. It's pretty cool looking. I like Angel's relationship with his wings. Like, they obviously have a will of their own, but they're stuck together, so they're sort of like odd couple roommates or like rambunctious buddy cops like Angel is sort of the miserable gothy one and his wings are the really, really irritating, perpetually loud, perpetually high punk who just wants to go out and party and smash mailboxes. Next time on Warren and the Wings. Warren and the Wings are stuck in their apartment because they've lost the key. They reminisce about a lot of the fun times they've had. Why are we walking like this? <laughs> right? So, yes, all of the Ravens feel this because they're all linked together. There are 24 of them around the world. They know that one of their own has died, and they conveniently tell us, the reader, that they're all going to fade away and lose their power and disappear unless they can make a new Raven within 24 hours, specifically, in this case, the guy that killed Azure. Does it have to be Archangel because he killed Azure, or do they want him to be a Raven because he's obviously badass because he killed Azure? Eh, unclear, but regardless, they know exactly what they need to do. Oh, and the color name will be really easy because he's already blue. Well, right, but, like, what kind of blue? You can't just call him blue. Gosh, um, he's sort of a sky blue. No, no, doesn't sound vampire-y enough. We need something else. Gosh, um... I mean, there's cyan? I don't know. That just makes me think be of Final cyan, Fantasy yeah. Well, there's already a cerise. Hmm. So, the Ravens now have their plan... In the meantime, um, now that there's been another incident at a hospital, X-Factor is, of course, not far behind. Beast is still super troubled by Trish Tilby and is pondering that as he goes. It's in to be tolerant now. Not so fashionable to hate. But I remember the past. A broadcast like Trish's awakens sleeping fears. It reminds people that mutants, even the good ones, are powerful. That we can snap and become dangerous. And conveniently enough, once Beast gets to the hospital after pondering these things, Trish and her camera crew are there. Because, you know, dude just burst into flame. It's pretty newsworthy. 
And Beast, who is a man who makes only really good relationship decisions, decides that the best thing to do is be to confront Trish and demand a private conversation, by which I mean grab her and carry her out a window. Oh, I kind of feel like you should ask permission before you carry someone outside a window. You should definitely do that. Super uncool, Beast. Well, they do talk. And she basically says, hey, I'm just reporting these things. I'm not trying to make Archangel look bad, but he's doing things that just inherently look bad. Yeah, he's doing things that are a problem, and he is actively a public safety hazard. Beast, for his part, declares that she has been put up to this and is under the thumb of her ex, who is trying to use it as a way to get back at Hank because he's dating Trish. Because again, Beast is taking everything real personally, and he's being a dick this story. Come on, Hank. When you make assumptions, you make an ass out of me and umption. There's not an E in assumptions. It's fine. Oh, in other news, uh, Kyle, our producer, pointed out that Cerulean would probably be the color for Vampire Archangel. I think that's totally true. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cerulean. Well, Archangel himself is continuing his dark, deathy Batman thing and going after some jerks on the street. And during this encounter, Crimson appears, seeing him for the first time, and transfixes him. Someone has given him madness, and he's embraced it. Joyously, like a lover. He glories in it, in freedom from thought, from memories, from restraint. And she would probably have enough time to put the full vampire psychic whammy on him, except Charlotte Jones happens to be on the beat right now, points a gun at her and says, Hey lady, quit taking over that dude's mind, that's not cool. Crimson disappears. Because it's sunrise and she's a vampire, even if she's a psychic one. And Archangel is furious at Charlotte for apparently having driven Crimson away. He declares that her lawyers will hear from his lawyers as he fires flechettes at her feet and storms off. So this is something we're going to see more and more of ever since this brief encounter between Archangel and Crimson. She, of course, being one of the ravens, started to bring up his traumatic memories. And for some reason, that interacted with the poison in his bloodstream by making him think that he was rich playboy Warren Worthington III, not, you know, the former horseman of death who's covered in bladed wings. So he is literally just Knife Batman right now. He's basically Knife Batman, yeah. And it's comical, but it's also really sad to see him doing all these violent things and then acting all, like, prim and proper and upset. Yeah, he's definitely going to accidentally rob a bank in the next issue of this story. It's going to be pretty great. And speaking of, I remember you really enjoyed the blurb on the cover of the next issue. Okay, so... It's not just that it's a blurb, it's that it's presented as like a to-do list with each item checked off. And I love this. I love the idea that somebody has written a to-do list that reads, Angels robbed a bank. X-Factor's been ambushed by deadly terrorists. Psychic vampires are on the loose. You can never accuse X-Factor of being uneventful. I assume that this is just like Louise Simonson's grocery list for the week. So this is number 57, and this is actually drawn by Andy Hubert. You may remember him from Reign of Terror, which we covered in our winter special. And, and also so much X-Men. So much X-Men later so on. So much X-Men. So all of the X-Mans. So X-Factor is chasing Archangel through the sky. They're still trying to get him, you know, back to his senses, not having much luck. When they are suddenly set upon by cyborg soldiers that strike them as vaguely familiar and strike us, the reader, as vaguely familiar too, although they're missing the main feature that identified them before. These are the former smiley face soldiers of the right. The right being the anti-mutant terrorist organization run by Cameron Hodge, the former PR guy for X-Factor. Holy shit. Yeah, I wasn't expecting them to show up again. Yeah, this is out of absolutely nowhere. And in fact, we don't get to see much of why they're here, although that'll be a big deal very shortly. But this is X-Factor, so it's not just a fight. We also get some awesome melodrama between Scott and Jean. Eye contact. A smile. It's almost like the old days, when they were lovers, when they were friends. She turns away, and it is almost more than he can stand. His rage rises like a torrent, sweeping all before it from his path. Man, soap operas would be way better if they involved optic blasts more. The soldiers retreat as suddenly as they appeared, and Charlotte Jones appears to yell from below that Warren is robbing a bank. X-Factor cops and reporters all head over. And in fact, that's where the various robot terrorist troop guys are heading as well. Warren, though, is totally oblivious to this because he thinks he is, again, rich playboy Warren Worthington III, just making a relatively normal withdrawal. The teller panics and just throws handfuls of money at him. So he's not really robbing a bank. Like, the bank is robbing itself at him. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. But I love the way that Andy Hubert draws this because we see Archangel in his normal blue scary persona 
But in the reflections of the glass near the teller, we see the old Warren. That's how he sees himself, you know, adjusting his tie, opening his wallet, whereas Archangel's just holding nothing as he does this. His yeah, delusion is complete. He's going through those motions. He sees himself or he thinks he's putting money in his wallet. He's actually just dropping handfuls of bills on the ground and tells off the cops, tells off the teller. And he's throwing flechettes at them. But again, he's talking like it's just a normal hostile interaction. It gets a little bit more hostile, though, when the soldiers of the right and everybody else shows up and the soldiers attack Archangel. There is no excuse for bank officers to behave so aggressively. My lawyers will be in touch. So I think what it is, he doesn't just think he's a normal rich guy. He thinks he's a normal rich asshole. So I was thinking about this and like if this were actually what normal rich people were like. And there are a lot of things I dislike about America, and there are a lot of things wrong with class in America right now, but I do really appreciate that we live in a nation where the wealthy do not all have poisonous bladed wings. That would be bad. That would be really bad. Well, you know, 2017 just started. We'll see what happens. Oh, God, don't even joke. (laughs) But the interesting thing here with Warren is that he was never just a normal rich guy. I mean, his mutant powers manifested when he was a teenager. He didn't really have a chance to be an adult without this big secret that he had to hide. Well, until he hit his stage of running around topless in airports. I mean, that's true. He was not hiding very much at all at that point. Yeah. The thing is, Warren, in some ways, he's defined by his mutation. But in other ways, his class, his wealth insulates him in ways and his wealth and the fact that he has an aesthetically pleasant mutation and one that people have a relatively easy time accepting really insulate him. He can just live as rich playboy and businessman Warren Worthington III, who also has huge fucking wings. And it's not actually that big a deal. He just gets bored with that periodically and goes off to become a superhero. So the fight doesn't last very long because the soldiers of the right teleport away as it's very clear they're losing. And we get a brief cutaway to the shadowy, mysterious, severed head on robot tentacles who's apparently behind this. Holy shit, this is X-Factor's number one OG douchebag, Cameron motherfucking Hodge. Now, the book doesn't identify him as such, but those reflective, perfectly round glasses, the shape of his face, it's pretty clear. He is, at this point, a severed head skittering around on robo-tentacles. It's kind of incredibly creepy. Now, he's going to be a huge deal coming up in the Extinction Agenda. Well, he's going to be the main villain of the Extinction Agenda. This is a tease for what's going to become the build-up to that. It's pretty great, yeah. So we last saw Hodge, I think, in X-Factor 34 when Angel decapitated him. Yeah, that was after Hodge killed Angel's girlfriend, Candy Southern. And I am so excited to see him back. I realized, you know, we are very hard on X-Factor villains. And I think one of the reasons for that is that Cameron Hodge sets such a high bar. He is so creepy and he is so effective and he is such a pervasive and powerful villain that other people just don't quite live up. And he's so organized. I mean, look at him. He's so Natalie attired as well. Binders that would make Leslie Nope drool. And also optic blast proof armor, which I respect. That's just good planning. Yeah, but it's really bad armor. Well, you know, as long as it works. Still, Hodge is a great villain and he comes back and back and back and back like a cockroach. He's gonna keep doing that. He is the archetypical, his hate keeps him alive, along with a techno-organic virus, villain. And it works so well on him. Like, that, you know, I built this evil empire entirely out of my grudge against one school frenemy thing sometimes reads as false. With Cameron Hodge, I 100% buy it. Yeah, he is an expert at pettiness. He is professionally petty. Yeah, he's amazing, and I am really, really psyched to see him teased as a return. But for now, Archangel escapes yet again after the soldiers teleport away, and X-Factor suddenly gets some unexpected help from a couple of dudes that show up out of nowhere. Banshee and Forge, who we last saw in um, Uncanny X-Men, running around in the Morlock tunnels with Jean and her tentacles. Yeah, now this is interesting because it's like X-Factor is meeting them for the first time in a long time here, but at the same time, over in Uncanny X-Men, Banshee and Forge are living in ship. It's kind of hard to tell what order things happen in around here because Uncanny X-Men's coming out really, really frequently and X-Factor's coming out less frequently. Yeah, and X-Factor is not too happy to see these two X-dudes here, especially Cyclops, who is just death glaring at Forge, although not, you know, literally, which I guess he could do. And part of that is because, you know, he saw Forge depower his teammate Storm. He saw Forge sacrifice the X-Men in Dallas. Including his brother. But it's also pretty clear to everybody that Forge is really attracted to Gene. And we saw some hints of that in that Morlock story in Uncanny X-Men. That's very much a thing here. And I actually enjoy that even though there's tension at the moment, it doesn't go anywhere. Because a lot of the time, if you're into somebody, it usually doesn't go anywhere. It's rare that it actually does. Especially if you're a superhero. 
Especially. And especially if, like, Forge, you're still carrying a huge torch for Storm. Which I guess, to be fair, everyone is at all times anyway, but still. Now, Forge has a theory. Archangel doesn't just have poison going through his bloodstream, but he thinks he's got a subcutaneous capsule that's been implanted by Sabretooth during the fight, very similar to the plague capsules implanted in Havoc and Wolverine during the Meltdown Limited series. Wait, 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 wait. How does Forge know about Meltdown? He hasn't run into any of those X-Men. Oh, he read the comics. He listened to our podcast and saw that we recommended it, and he just read it. That's really, honestly, the only plausible explanation at this point, because there really isn't a reasonable way. I guess he could have heard about it from Moira. Has she been in touch with the Outback X-Men at all? I don't think so, no. No, never mind. I mean, this is iffy in a lot of ways. This doesn't really make a ton of sense. Well, right, because Sabretooth slashed him with poison claws. We saw that. How does that get a capsule in a specific spot under your skin? Maybe he had the capsule under one of his nails and it had some kind of technology that caused it to burrow and lodge itself in a specific spot. I'm going to say that seems entirely plausible. Let's go with it. Nanomachines. Nanomachines. Unstable molecules. All of those things. The T.O. virus. Let's just throw out our X-Men continuity stuff. Clan Ascani. So... Warren is flying around, and he's in deep in delusion at this point. He really just thinks he's a rich dude, and he's not thinking a about the fact. A rich flying dude, there's that. He's just not thinking about that fact. So X-Factor predicts where he might go. They head to one of the Worthington Enterprise buildings where he thinks he's going into a board meeting and basically ambush him. Forge has built a belt that will suppress Warren's power, not long-term like with Storm, uh, just as long as he's wearing it. And it'll take effect gradually so he won't, you know, plummet abruptly from the sky if they get it on while he's flying. They manage to get this belt onto him, but just as he's starting to drift off, just as he's starting to lose control of his powers, who shows up but the Ravens? In In the the sight sight of all, all, we we surround you. you. With With arm of fire, we surround you. you. Now your strength must replace what was stolen, that the circle may grow ever stronger. And Archangel falls into their mist, and everyone disappears. Yep, because if there's one theme to this story, it's that Archangel disappears about four seconds after X-Factor finds him, like, every single time. Sorry, X-Factor, your angel is in another issue. An issue drawn by John Bogdanov. Hey, we love John Bogdanov. I don't think there are any hugs in this issue, though. No, but he does draw a really cool, extremely bulky beast. Not a lot of people draw beasts that way in this era, and I kind of think they should. He also draws remarkably fun and good horror. And the first thing he draws is the ravens taking Archangel to an abandoned theater where they're going to enact the ritual because they're LARPers. Oh, right. And you know what I think it is? I think they're LARPers who are also, of course, in the drama club at school. So they have access well, yeah, to the Yeah, because they're LARPers. Yeah, yeah. So, well, this you know. is an abandoned theater. But I mean, to be fair, you didn't really do any of that stuff in high school. But I did. And I remember the large amount of like low-key trespassing it involved. So, <laughs> So there you go. So they tie him to a giant Ankh symbol, saying that, you know, Upside down. Horus the god holds an Ankh in his right hand for life, the ravens are his left hand, death, because they're vampires and they're very gothy. So they're enacting a ritual um, that will make him one of them, and they've also headed out to pick up his first victim, someone from his former life. This is going to be Charlotte Jones. And the way this happens is so sad because Charlotte Jones, so she's a single mom and she's tucking in her adorable son, Timmy, assuring him, don't worry, Timmy, there aren't monsters. Monsters aren't real. At which point the Ravens take that as their cue to teleport in and basically say, hey, Timmy, it turns out monsters actually are real and we are them and here we are. Ha ha ha. We're stealing your mom. Fucking yuppies. Fucking yuppies. Always stealing moms and destroying their maternal credibility. Meanwhile, at the theater, Archangel's transformation is ongoing. He's begun to speak in the same hieroglyphs the ravens are chanting in, and his face is getting more and more twisted. And when Charlotte shows up, he starts to draw her memories out. And she resists. And I'd like to point out, so I don't always listen to music when I do podcast work, but sometimes I do. And at this point, I was listening to the soundtrack for Dragon Age Inquisition, which is epic as hell. And so this entire scene was just incredibly heroic and badass, and I was so excited about how cool Charlotte Jones was. So let's just throw that in right now. Crimson narrates the badassitude of Charlotte Jones here. She feels it happening. Lives it all again. And terrible as they are, she faces them. She doesn't flinch. Perhaps she knows, as I know that this will be her one faint hope of salvation. But there's another hope because X-Factor suddenly charges in and attacks. And this is actually a really great battle scene. We normally don't go into detail, but there's one panel where Cyclops optic blasts three ravens at once, like disintegrating one of their heads off because killing vampires doesn't count, remember? Yeah, they have a brief conversation about this during which I think it's either Beast or Iceman points out that they're not human, so it's okay to kill them. 
which is bad logic. Bad logic, because you know who else isn't human? Uh, mutants. Yes, <laughs> and like a bunch of the Marvel Universe, including a lot of sentient creatures. This is not a good operating assumption, guys. Well, as the Ravens die one by one, Crimson still has her own mission, so she starts trying to absorb Archangel to sort of devour his soul. But Charlotte Jones, being a super badass powered by, you know, awesome fantasy music, manages to get her tied hands in front of her body, and despite the fact that she's totally outclassed by this psychic vampire, attacks Crimson, doing her best to save her blue-bladed buddy. She believes in Warren Worthington. She tells him to fight. Fight. Yes, I'll fight. My life was mine to lose, but now you've gone too far. The oblivion you offer is madness. And by threatening her... You've shown me your true self, Crimson. Leave us, vampire. Be gone. And he cuts her goddamn head off, and it is awesome. And, I mean, the battle's not quite over at this point. There are more ravens. Yeah, Jean totally smashes one of their heads in with the giant onk, because, you know. Specifically, Cobalt. And when he dies, all the other ravens turn into what is apparently their true form, Red Mist, and fly up through the ceiling, defeated forever, never to return again. X-Factor is able to retrieve the poisonous pellet from Warren, and he wakes up and comes back to himself and specifically recognizes Charlotte. Yeah, because their minds were half merged when the Ravens forced him to start linking with her and to start devouring her. So he saw her traumatic memories. He saw all the shit that she's been through. And even though they barely know each other, he suddenly feels close to her. Part of me yearned for the oblivion Crimson promised. Part of me wanted to succumb. But your memories awakened me. Drove me beyond myself. You became my saving grace. It was your need, your courage, that gave us both another chance. And this is kind of the beginning of the relationship of Archangel and Charlotte Jones. And I gotta say, it is one of my favorite romances in all of X-Men. It's not focused on very often, except for the next issue we'll be covering. But when it does show up, it's pretty great. They're awesome together. Which brings us to X-Factor 59, denouement, denouement, and more denouement. But first, let's throw some shit at a baby. (laughs) Yeah, so Terry Shoemaker draws this one, and the first thing he draws is X-Factor testing Nathan Christopher's force bubble. So little baby Nathan Christopher, I guess more toddler at this point, it's unclear how old he is, is reading an ABC book while floating in the air in a sphere being shot with a goddamn laser beam inside ship. X-Factor makes really bad choices in general. I don't know how you parent, but that's basically how I would do it. I don't have kids, and this is why. This right here. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. What they do figure out is that this force bubble is based on telekinesis, most likely the telekinesis of Nathan Christopher's biological mother, Madeline Pryor, who, of course, is a clone of the telekinetic Jean Grey. That makes sense. And so, you know, Jean is totally cool with this. She's been awesome about helping to raise Scott and Madeline's kid, and that remains the case. As she says, You're going to become something wonderful, aren't you, baby doll? And we're going to teach you to control that power But first, you're going to take a nap. No, not tired. Want to stay up. I really love the idea of baby Nathan Christopher just talking in Cable's voice like every single time. Yeah, yeah, I'm in. (laughs) And Scott and Jean are thinking to themselves about their potential futures. We should mention this takes place after the Days of Future Present annual. Yeah, we'll get to that soon. But the short version is they go to Earth 811, the Days of Future Past Future. There's a bad guy named Ahab. It's not good for anybody. And Nathan Christopher doesn't exist in that future, and Jean is beginning to think that maybe that means that she's not quite so bound up by destiny as she thought, that maybe her choices do actually matter. So Scott is still feeling pretty embarrassed about the way he handled the proposal, so he asks, hey, can we just put things kind of back the way they were for now? And she says, that's cool, and in fact... And who knows? Next time, Scott, I might be the one to propose to you. In fact, she will be exactly that. So Beast and Iceman are pretty pleased that their buds are getting along. Iceman points out here that, you know, Beast, maybe you've been a little unfair to someone as well. Hint, hint, Trish Tilby. I won't tell you what to do, but come on, dude. Beast goes off to apologize to Trish, who is at this moment talking with her boss and ex-husband, Paul, debating the footage. She says the incident wouldn't have happened if the press hadn't pushed, and Paul says they have an obligation to report on it anyway. Yeah, and this is sort of the big debate about the media in this era. This is where Trish and Beast keep going back and forth with each other also in this case, with Paul. And it's interesting. I mean, it's certainly a valid question to ask. Like, you know, facts are facts, sure, but the way they're portrayed, that can often influence how they're perceived. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very much the job of the press to report relevant information, which a guy covered with blades going berserk in your city is kind of important. But 
at the same time, how they report that is really critical. I mean, I think one of the obvious examples of how press bias impacts reporting and impacts discussion, you look at a lot of examples lately of the difference between the way white suspects in crimes, in violent crimes especially, are portrayed in news media versus black suspects or versus innocent black people who have been killed by the police. The photos that are chosen, the language used to describe them, the fact that you get you know, nice kid who kept to himself versus, you know, really, really biased language. And that's a byproduct of reporting. You can report the same event, nominally objectively report the same facts and tell two very different stories. Journalism isn't just regurgitating information. It's shaping the narrative around it. And that's where a lot of the ethics of journalism come in. It's not just what you say. It's how you say it. But I mean, regardless, even though it's done badly sometimes, I mean, obviously, it is hugely important, like full freedom of the press, the press's ability to criticize even when the criticized don't want to be criticized. That is freaking huge. And Beast right here uh, sums it up quite nicely, I think. Reporters, when they do their jobs right, notice things and sound the warning. We need them to nose around where they're not wanted. To ask questions, to discover the skeletons in society's closets, to censor them would be unthinkable. I'm going to keep harping on this because this is something that I care about a lot personally and professionally. But a lot of the function of a free press is to hold power accountable. And at this point, based on their position in the city, X Factor is operating from a position of relative social and definitely force-based power. Yeah, so... Go Hank McCoy for recognizing this important thing. Unfortunately, his revelation and change of heart doesn't last long because he comes up to the window of Trish Tilby's office just in time to see her kissing her ex on the cheek. Turns out for something totally innocuous, turns out totally platonic, but Beast is kind of hypersensitive these days, kind of insecure about basically everything, so of course, he assumes the worst. God damn it. Yeah, God forbid she expresses casual affection to someone she clearly liked enough to marry at one point. That's why we never touch each other or even make eye contact. We're actually recording this with a wall between us. I don't even know if this is really Jay or if this is just some kind of artificial intelligence with Jay's voice. God damn it, he's on to me. Oh boy. Uh, listeners, if you don't hear from me again, that... Initiate ZZ105 protocols. Well, anyway, everything here is fine, so let's talk about the scene that comes next with Archangel. Archangel is standing on a tramway cable high in the sky angrily crumpling a newspaper whose headline demands to know X-Factor, heroes or menace. I assume it's the Daily Bugle. I mean, they do like the word menace a whole lot. It's, it's a true. great word. It's a fun word. But this uh, is not just an empty space up here in the sky because a bunch of reporters are crammed into a tram car yelling questions at him out of nowhere below. And I love the way that Louise Simonson narrates him noticing them. Archangel whirls, poised on the tramway cable. The transport, the lifeline between Manhattan, that brazen land of impossible tarnished dreams, and the stolid, self-enclosed, self-secure little world that is Roosevelt Island. Like, I almost wonder if Louise Simonson is having a purple prose off with Chris Claremont at this point. Like, she could have just said, Archangel notices them. But no, she has to, like, go into this great meditation. Or on... Archangel could just be drawn noticing them. Well, that too. I mean, it's very much a show a and tell book, moment. Yeah. But I really love it. Louise Simonson's narration is so much fun, and I'm really going to miss her when she stops working with Marvel very shortly after the issues we're describing. I have to say, I think this arc is one of her weaker ones in a lot of places. It is so text-heavy. It's Claremont levels of text-heavy, almost more so. There are panels where there are so many thought balloons that the art becomes almost claustrophobic and the framing becomes claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. And while the text is fun for atmosphere, it's just not making good use of the medium. There's just too much. <laughs> well, the reporters, there are too many of them also, because in the jostling to get questions to Archangel, a couple of them fall out of the goddamn tram and are about to hit the water and die. Archangel saves them, at which point they begin asking, so about you and that cop lady you've been seen with? And he just drops them in the water. And guess who's watching as he does? Um, Cameron Hodge? Trish Tilby with her camera crew, because every time Fine. Angel does anything unfortunate, it's totally going to get on television. Archangel responds by brooding around and none more gothing his way through the air. Flying no longer brings him peace. He's lost his parents. His parents died, by the way, in an exact reenactment of Hamlet featuring his evil uncle, the Dazzler, but not that Dazzler. It's totally true. Yeah, that's a thing that happened <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, my God. 
you know, I'm just going to throw that in as an aside here. Yeah, so he's lost his parents. He's lost Candy Southern. He's blue. He's kind of awkward. And he finds himself on the way to Charlotte's apartment, ostensibly to warn her that people are talking about them. But, you know, I guess probably actually just to tell her about how terrible his life is. And Charlotte's mother-in-law, who we haven't met before, is at the window. And I gotta say, she is one of my favorite characters. And just what do you think you're doing here, Mr. High and Mighty Archangel? Dragging my grandson's mother out into the night? After vampires yet and still in her nightgown. Now don't you go denying it. And she's batting at him with a broom during this, which makes it even better. Can you imagine how awful it would be to get Archangel stuck in your chimney? (laughs) That would be totally awful. But she's wonderful. I enjoy that what's scandalous for her is the nightgown part, not the vampires part. Dude, Charlotte is a New York cop in the Marvel Universe. Vampires are are like every other Thursday. (laughs) Basically. But Charlotte's son, Timmy, the aforementioned adorable Moppet, is also there. And he's excited to see her and exclaims, Cowabunga! It's Archangel! Because this is 1990, and so of course he does. Now, the mother-in-law doesn't really like this whole thing, as Charlotte welcomes Archangel in. You know, Charlotte's husband's only been dead for three years, and a white man killed him. Archangel's not a white man, Grandma! He's a blue man! Actually, Timmy, race is a social construct. But I really do love Timmy. He's just such an adorable, like, happy child. Archangel, are you my new dad? Will, will you take me to the moon? And so, yeah, Charlotte invites Archangel in to stay for coffee despite the mother-in-law's protestations. Do you want to see my belly button? <laughs> well, anyway, Charlotte invites Archangel in, and while she's getting ready for work, he and Timmy talk. And I gotta say, this scene melts my goddamn heart. I love everything about it. Sometimes kids look at my crutches and call me Crip or Four Legs. Some of them don't want to be around me. It makes them feel funny, sort of scared. But some people get used to me being different real fast. Some people don't mind. Not everybody, but mom says they're the special people and the others don't count. But she says give them all a chance because there are more special people in the world than the other kind. Timmy, by the way, was injured in a gang war drive-by shooting that killed his father and damaged Timmy's spinal cord. And this is almost cheating. I mean, you have like a Tiny Tim-esque, adorable, optimistic child explaining how everything's going to be okay to our hero. But I completely buy it, and a lot of that is Terry Shoemaker's art. The way he draws Archangel's face, with his brow kind of furrowed, with his lips pulled tight, like almost like he's trying to hold back tears, but really just trying to hold back almost the hope he's starting to feel for the first time in a long time. This is something that Warren Worthington needed. This is something his arc has been gradually, reluctantly leading toward. And so to see him finally have these first hints of happiness and hope and trust, it's great. He's not really sure what to do with this because, like Crimson, he recognizes that his true power entirely comes from his angst. And if he loses that, yeah, he loses everything. (laughs) Right. That's not true at all. He offers to give Charlotte a literal lift to work. And asks about what Timmy mentioned, the whole thing about how her husband died, and she tells him. Her husband was also a cop, and the whole family was caught in gang war crossfire while they were walking home from parents' night at school. Like, that was so wholesome, and then out of nowhere, aww. Yeah, that's about as, like, tragic, gratuitous, and wholesome as a random death gets. Angel decides that he's going to cheer her up by ruining someone else's date. Well, specifically, they see Iceman and Opal ice sliding around, and Angel buzzes them. Like, he flies around him real close, laughing. And this is not something Bobby's seen in a long time. This is how they used to play around. This was the old Warren that used to do stuff like that. Yes, before he had near-sentient, malicious, bladed wings. Like, I really think he could have thought this one through better. Well, regardless, it's charming, and that's our first sign that, hey, maybe for Warren, things are going to be okay. Now, a person for whom things maybe are not going to be so okay is Opal, because after Iceman drops her off, she gets a letter. It's full of documents, pictures of her when she was a kid. And this will come into play later because, because... It's the Cyber Eye! The Cyber Eye, you guys! I love them! So Angel flies off, and he's thinking about how, you know, while he doesn't really want to be rich asshole Warren Worthington, because he would never have really had time for Charlotte or her family, he's still got rich asshole Warren's skills, so he goes down and charms the pants off a bunch of reporters with a really good interview and statement, and everyone lives happily ever after, at least until Extinction Agenda. And this is nice, because this, you know, post-Judgment War, pre-Extinction Agenda arc, started with Warren losing his temper, losing his shit, and freaking out against a bunch of reporters, and now he's a lot more in control. It's a nice way to show that. But if there's one thing we've learned over the last 50-odd issues, it's that X Factor can't have nice things. And as Angel charms the press, a shadowy severed head is there to reign on the parade. 
So, the monstrous archangel at last is happy, has reached some accommodation with the sharp-edged, terrible, lethal wings. But it won't last, that I swear. Soon I will destroy him as he destroyed me. So that wraps up the 4 and 20 Blackbirds arc. Now, I've got something for this. There wasn't really a point where it easily fit in during the narration, but I actually have Crimson statted up. Like as a Vampire the Masquerade character? Yeah, so I actually, I have a friend, um, my friend Lillian Cohen-Moore writes for White Wolf, and she knows her way around this stuff really, really well. I sent her the issues, and I asked if she would be willing to take a look and see how and whether Crimson would fit into the White Wolf rules, and she came up with a fairly solid version of Crimson. I'm going to leave out the working notes and come up with the two different character proposals she came up with for Crimson. One is actually a really cool twist on Crimson's backstory. It's sort of no prizing her involvement. So I'm just going to read from Lillian's official report here. Crimson is a Toreador Antitribute and a member of the Sabbat. She's been with her pack for countless years or is so deluded and manipulated that she only thinks she's been with them all that time. Instead of humanity, Crimson is on one of the Sabbat paths of enlightenment. So instead of human morality, a vampire on a path uses this warped code of conduct to keep their beast at bay. The path of Cathari or path of the beast would be my lead contenders. She's probably Auspex 4 with Dominate at 4 or 5. Her social traits are clearly 4 across the board at minimum. Her physical traits are a reasonable dexterity 3, strength 3, constitution 3. Crimson's mental traits are probably maxed out or close to it. She clearly isn't a Kergen intro level PC, but her stats would be social prime, mental secondary, physical tertiary. Her occult, history, survival, politics, linguistics, empathy, intimidation, and subterfuge would respectively be 5, 4, 4, 4, 3, 4, 3, and 4. Her conviction is 3, instincts is 3, and courage is 5. Since she does get into shit physically, I'd tack some fortitude in there as well. Is she a realistic character? Eh, I think that's hard to gauge. As a PC, the first day of a new chronicle with no XP? Not happening. The most reasonable assessment is that she'd make a fantastic NPC for mid-level PCs to go up against. A challenge, fatal if they're stupid, with just enough power differential to be interesting. So that's basically the role she plays in the comic. Now, Lillian also points out, if she's a PC, it's one that's been in play and committing diablerie for a long time. But something occurred to me when Crimson and her crew were going to replace their fallen member with a mutant. Are they all as old as they think they are? Or is the man who comes across as de facto leader grabbing, promising, absolutely ruthless Sabbat as the centuries roll by, using a new Sabbat member to empty out like a husk, filling them with facsimiles of an original long-dead Raven's memories? His pack preserved forever with the little dolls he made himself. Maybe Crimson fell because she wasn't as powerful as she thought she was. That is kind of awesome. Yeah, Lillian is fantastic. She is a freelance, mostly game writer and editor. She is marvelous, and I will put a link to her in the visual companion to this episode. But meanwhile, you've got questions. Anthony asks via email, I can't remember if you discussed this when she debuted, but is there a reason why you pronounced Opal Loon Satire 9's name as Satire 9 instead of Saturnine? Since she's the dark, evil counterpart of 616 Courtney Ross, I always assumed her name was a pun on the adjective Saturnine and meant to be a homophone of that word. I assume the same, Anthony. Here's the catch. It's a visual pun. It's a homophone and the differences in the spelling, which is something that we can't convey in an entirely audio format. So we change the pronunciation to disambiguate in the same way that the spelling changes in the comic. Yeah. Uh, also, that's how I said it in my head when I was a kid, because I didn't know that Saturnine was actually a word, so I didn't catch the reference. And it's kind of hard to stop. But um, yeah, mainly what you said. It makes it a lot easier to tell who's who. So a different Anthony asks, also via email. Who would be the best fit for a horror movie villain besides Mystique, the Wolverines, and Sabretooth? I mean, I would probably go immediately to Mojo and Spiral, simply because they're terrifying inherently, and the Mojoverse is, like, rife with nightmare logic from just going to one implausible, bizarre scene to another. Or, I guess you could also do Predator X for a mutant story, like, you know, hunting them down like a traditional slasher film, but that would be kind of boring. Alternately, if you wanted to do Kimura and her trigger scent, you know, having the protagonist fly into murderous rages whenever the villain wanted them to, nobody except the protagonist and the villain would be safe in any given scene, that could be pretty terrifying, but would also take a fair bit of explanation. What do you think, Jay? So I have three on hand. One is the Shadow King, if we're talking about supernatural horror, you know, the who can you trust, who's possessed at any given time scenario. Sinister would be fun, but Sinister specifically in context of the fact that I think you could do Cyclops rediscovering his backstory as a pretty good horror story. Like, you could pretty much Jacob's Ladder it up. Ooh, yeah. And finally, actually, someone we talked about this episode, no, it's not Crimson, Cameron Hodge. 
Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah, Cameron Hodge is really scary. Cameron Hodge is the monster that won't die. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with an acknowledgement on air from a variety of fictional characters and or concepts. So let's hear from everybody's favorite angry Claremontian narrator. Ah, mortals. You stockpile personal tragedies like so much gold, never considering that such hordes are bound to attract thieves. What heartbreaks lurk beneath your cool facade, else Jolliffe? And will they be enough to sate the unholy hunger of Robert George? And on deck now, I believe we've got Sexy Dracula. Here in Transylvania, in Castle Sexy Dracula, we lead lives of tasteful sensuality, of quivering, pulsing class. Kiara, Jason, Nassi, and I, the Lord of the Vampires, drink only the sweetest pulsing red from only the most refined of breathless victims. Crimson and her ravens, feeding on the misery of vagrant stockbrokers and mildly depressed bluebirds? Shameful. But it's not too late. Kiara and Jason, please find these ravens and extend a cordial invitation to the castle. Let us show these poor souls the true meaning of desire. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan arts, recaps, video reviews, and more. Our show is indeed totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, please check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Come see us next week at Emerald City Comic Con, March 2nd through 5th, in Seattle, Washington. Meanwhile, next week, Logan opens in theaters, and we'll be skipping ahead a few decades to cover the comic story that inspired it. Get ready for a lot of grit. It's Old Man Logan time. (laughs) 